0: Welcome to Music Matters Podcast with Daryl Craig Harris, talking about all things music with celebrities, artists, music business insiders, and more. Hi guys, welcome to Music Matters, a podcast series about all things music. Today we have an awesome guest, uh, Kevin McGowan. Kevin is a singer songwriter. uh, had a had a long history uh, with music licensing and music clearance in Los Angeles, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, Hi, Kevin. How you doing?
1: I'm fabulous. How are you? Happy New Year, Daryl.
0: Hey, you too, man. Yeah, we're just getting started. Yes, let's hope this this year goes a little bit better than last year. (laughs) Here comes the sun in
1: 2021.
0: That's what I said. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. So we, you basically, you grew up in Vegas. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I was born here and uh, raised in Las Vegas. Um, grew up around the Boulevard Mall, if we know where that is. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, my mother um, was a prominent person in town. She was the vice president of Dunes Hotel oh. Public Relations and Advertising up on the Strip. And her boyfriend, Tony Zappi worked as an entertainment director at Riviera. So they had a lot going on up there on the Strip. So I grew up with that in mind. And um, then for me, on uh, February 7, 1964, when I was seven years old, I was one of the 73 million people that saw The Beatles on the show. Oh, wow, and, yeah. and everything went from black and white to color, as they say, and I was a little boy. And um, I'll just be honest, I didn't have a father growing up. My mother divorced and never remarried. so. I, I figured this out like I was in my 40s, like, what's up with this Beatle thing that changed my life and put me on a path? And I think it was that there were these four guys, not one, but four of them that were just so joyful in a unit, but conquering the world with music. And I looked up to them as father figures. And I was always known as the Beatle freak in Las Vegas when I was growing up. And I always said, Beatles forever, they'll always be the best. And that's what I thought, but I didn't know that. 50 years later would be true but that's still my opinion but i think it's true yeah. the beatles were a gift from the universe so um that's what happened for me uh growing up here in las vegas i was in bands played at valley high and uh way more and you was know, singing and playing drums and getting always around music
0: right cool. yeah i mean i mean the beatles thing like that that definitely was a earth-shattering change in the music world right and that they inspired mm-hmm. so many so many people that we now know that are household names um it's well such... it's a
1: time where um you know it only lasted like eight years but it was understood around the world in one unique way that these guys as john lennon used to say were in the crow's nest on the ship pointing the direction of pop culture and intellectual thinking and songwriting and uh, recording technology and just fashion and it was all with these guys for that short period of time. Everyone just looked so forward to their next release and they changed so fast and innovated yeah. so much. It was to be like with Bob Dylan and Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, and a lot of stuff and the civil rights and all these things that were going on in America at the time. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm older now, but that's one thing I don't mind being older. Because I was, I experienced that when I was young. Basically, I was what's called a teen bopper when I was growing up, and that was happening because I wasn't even quite a teenager. I was 11, 12, 13, and then they broke up. You
0: know? Right, yeah. Because, because people so people I, don't they don't realize actually that really wasn't that long of a time that they were together. It was, like yeah, you said, eight years. But I mean, that changed people, the world, right?
1: It did. And people take eight years to make their next album. They made so many albums and singles, yeah. and so much happened. Uh, and so I was exposed to a lot at a young age. And I really studied it and was interested in it and gave it, gave it my identity. To it.
0: Yeah. So how did you yeah. ultimately, you ended up in Los Angeles working for some large music licensing, music clearance firms. Um, how did you end up in L.A.? And how did you get hooked up? I know there was a legendary guy that you worked with. Um, that's yeah, part of your I, bio. Uh,
1: when I graduated Valley High School, I went to Pepperdine in Malibu, so Oh, okay. Here in the desert, here in the desert, all of a sudden I found myself looking over the Pacific Ocean up to Malibu like, wow. So I had a radio show there and I was starting to write more songs. And what happened was there's a man named Al Gallico who lived in New York. He was an independent music publisher and he started back in the 40s in the big band era. And Mm -hmm. he was by himself. He's actually started with Shapiro Bernstein and Leeds Music. Yeah, all the the New York guys, right? The New York guys and all that like real building and big band stuff. And then uh, he started his own company, and his first hit was the uh, domestic rights for House, of the Rise, of the Sun. Wow. So he started as a publisher. And then he wanted to come to California because the weather's nice. He had a family. So he had an office, he moved out on the corner of Sunset and Vine, right there in Harvard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he knew my mother and my mother's boyfriend. Because he loved to gamble, so he'd come to Vegas. And uh, so when he moved out to LA, he said, I'd like some kid that I could teach the business to and run the office. So I quit college after one year at Pepperdine because back in the 70s, you know, you didn't need a degree as much to get things. It's like I'm thinking music business just get out in the music business get on the street and yeah unless you're in the like
0: a corporate end of it it's basically yeah, like yeah
1: get out you know it was like the, and this guy was a big dude so you know he came out and i started working in the office and what was interesting with him is he was from new york but he went down to nashville and discovered a couple guys billy Sherrill and nora wilson right. jerry kennedy and he actually was an independent publisher that published stand by your man and the most beautiful girl and let me be there and all these yeah, huge hits, huge songs huge yeah. standard copyright songs right at the time as a teenager i started when i was 19 you know i was thrilled to be in hollywood and in this industry but i would hear these songs that he was publishing these country songs and they were so serious and depressing and you know make <laughs> breakup marriages and people killing themselves yeah, I'm but like, those songs made a lot
0: this, they made a lot of money what's this twangy <laughs>
1: shit going on so, but then later on, as you get older, I and mean, I really love country music now. I appreciate yeah. it. I understand. It just takes more maturing and, and living life to understand those life lessons.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a big leap from the Beatles to some of those artists.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, from rock and roll. But we'll talk about that because good rock and roll has country in it.
0: Yeah, and and, it, the, and it's the, that's the, actually the roots are right there, right? With Carl right Perkins, all those guys. Yep.
1: Oh, they're one of my, my favorites. The rock and roll thing. So uh, I worked with Al uh, for about ten years and learned a lot. You know, we were called song pluggers. I would buy material and try to get Engelbert Humperdinck or Barry Manilow or Olivia Newton-John or somebody like that to record it. that did not
0: write their own songs,
1: right? Because all those guys,
0: all those guys didn't write their own songs.
1: They didn't write their own songs. Now everybody says they write their own songs, even if they just.
0: They get hey, yo, they get baby, their name. They get the, yeah, they get their name added and they to the put credits. It on there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, um, you get on there. It's
1: smart, I guess.
0: So part of the reason, uh, yeah. well, there's a lot of reasons with you. why I wanted to have you on, but one of the big ones was there's a lot of misconception, a lot of confusion around the whole subject of music licensing, music clearance, what that is, mm-hmm. how that works. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the common misconceptions that you think, as far as like, obviously, and those are different things. That, so let's start with that: the difference between licensing and clearance.
1: You know, what we're talking about here is intellectual property and controlling and exploiting copyrights, intellectual property. When you write a song, if you are not signed to anybody and you're by yourself, let's say you just get into business, you own what's called the publishing and the writers right there, right there. So all of that is yours. The writer's point, let's say you wrote it it's yours show, you, until you give
0: it away or her.
1: Yeah, well, to begin with, yeah, it's nice because you have a pie here and you can right. split the pie 50 50. But if you're the sole writer, you have what's called a hundred percent of the writer and a hundred percent of the publishing. Now, the writer's share, you should not mess with that, you should keep that, although people are changing that. and You're not actually selling the writer's work which is not healthy, but like Willie Nelson had to do that back in the day when he needed money. Yeah, he
0: had the tax, the tax issue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, to make some money to buy another drink. But anyway, the publishing is what you have, this other portion of the pie that you can negotiate with. So if you write the song and you own it 100% and somebody likes it, you can negotiate and say, well, okay, I'll give you 50% of the publishing. I can keep 50%. Or some people go, no, I want 100% of the publishing. So you have this thing that's a wonderful thing to be able to be able to uh, negotiate with and go forward and have a career. So what happens, um, after I left out Gallico, I worked for Walt Disney Studios for 13 years. Wow. And I was in the theatrical marketing department. And that's the department that created the trailers and TV commercials right. for the movies. Which is so a big get, they deal with Disney, for sure. Oh, yeah. that's the marketing yeah. of the film. So we would get the first cut of the film in and we'd look at it and go, this is not very good. But our job is to shine this truth and make it look better. Right. So in two minutes, you make people want to come in and see it. So we would use songs and score cues in these trailers to help sell the visual. What's happening here is a thing called synchronization rights. Okay. And that's part of publishing, Robert, you can do well with synchronization. The concept of synchronization is when you sync or link up an audio to a visual image, right? You need to first of all get permission. Oh.
0: I lost you. Um, You broke up a little bit there.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying is you have to get permission to use these audio recordings to a visual image. So you have to find out who controls it, the publishing for the song and the recordings, the record company. And it's not just about money. It's about getting the permission and then making a deal. And right. letting, letting the people know what you want to do with
0: yeah because their i mean yeah and because obviously if you don't get permission you're opening yourself up for lawsuits you have you Absolutely. may put out a product that that you can have to pull from the market um, it's against
1: the law you right know? that's just and you need to know that there's an opportunity there to get what you want done and to before you shoot a scene with the song married to the scene don't do that Find right out if you can use the song and then once you do, have permission then you go shoot the scene i've had to tell producers look you got to pull that song out of there and it's very costly to do that yeah so what what i was saying is that you go to the publisher for the song and the record company for the recording of the song Mm -hmm. and there's a process in doing that that's the music clearance part the licensing comes later after the song is used and some people go well no i want the license before it's even used no you wait till it airs or it's going to be released and it's locked so you know that nothing changes yeah that's and that's
0: been a long established process for especially for television and film right that that's something that's already set in stone pretty much
1: yeah when, when i was at disney i worked on films and then when i left disney i went with a company called emg which is the best Music clearance company in town for sure.
0: Yeah,
1: Evan M Greenspan is the guru. It's his company, and I was with him for I guess sixteen years or so, and we did mostly television shows. So we cleared the Emmys and the Oscars and the Grammys yeah. and the Billboard awards and iHeart Music awards.
0: Yeah, we that's a big that's a big job, right?
1: <laughs> oh, it's so busy and crazy, and that was a whole other thing about music and i'd like to talk more about that because i guess that's the most recent thing sure and what happens is we have clients we are the people in between the client who's producing the show and the music publisher record company so we're the middle guy so our client comes to us and let's say they're producing the Grammy awards and what we have to do, first of all, is find out what rights they want for the show, the Grammy Awards. Is it U.S. and Canada for right. two years or is it the world for five years or is it what's called in perpetuity uh, forever?
0: And that's And, and that's at, a whole. Those are all different rate structures, right? What, the, what they're going to the have to pay. Rights,
1: yeah. Yes. And what you want to do is get that understanding very locked in with your producer before you. What's called sing out a request, which is knocking on the door to the publishers and the record companies. Right. You submit a request, and this request tells what the show is about, and it tells what song you want to use, and the writers on the song, and the publishers and co publishers. And there's usually a synopsis of the use of the song. You know, this is a visual vocal, and so and so will be singing it right. uh, up to one minute or if it's let's say a background vocal, up to 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. These are structured and laid out differently. And we propose fees, oh, we okay. go in and propose fees to the publishers and we need to know if it's for the world, for how long. And the thing is, once you do this, you wanna make sure that that's all in place. So you don't have to go back later and go, oh, well, we don't want that anymore. We want to do that. Because once you send these, I used to send out like 2,000 requests for different shows. Wow. And then you've got to really have that all mapped out. So you want to get that done. And one thing that we would do is because these fees are proposed, we would go to the top busy publishers that own
0: most of the catalogs. Yeah, just make it simple, right? Or simple as. Yeah, right. Get a <laughs>
1: real temperature about the reality of how this is going to go. Based on the show, how popular it is, and that kind of thing. So we would go to Universal Music, BMG Music, Sony, ATV, and
0: one of the Shop. big guys. Yeah.
1: The big guys. And we would get a consensus. We would propose fees for these uses. And then there's a thing called, this is a big point in the music business, there's a thing called Most Favored Nations, which in princess is MFN. Most mm-hmm. Favored Nations. Means let's say we propose a thousand dollars for a use, and this one publisher says, No, I really want two thousand dollars. Right, and we go, Well, you know, these other people over here all agree to the one thousand dollars. Yeah, and if you don't, we might not be able to use your song. Yeah, because because, I mean, they have a
0: budget, right? And they do want their songs used, it's just figuring out the right, they do, yeah,
1: they do, but there's a budget. So then what they would do, they would say, Okay, we'll approve this. MFN, meaning if some other publisher just changes their mind and says, we want $1,250, and then I have to go back to the producers and say, these guys won't budge, but at least it's not $2,000, it's $1,250, that's better. So the one over here that said $2,000, they know and can trust that they're also going to get $1,250. So when they approve something, they put MFN co publishers, they could say MFN. Record company master, that's the master, right? Or they could say MFN, all songs in an episode. So they're protecting themselves without having to really get in there and beat everybody up and find out what's going on. Yeah. They just say MFN. Because so the thing is, what, I
0: mean, for for the labels and obviously for the artists, if they've retained, hopefully they retain some of their percentage, um that is the money, right? Unless, I mean, as an artist, you know, a lot of people don't really understand that world. Um, a lot of people, we've all heard the stories of people giving away their publishing rights and they don't understand it, that that's the money. That's the money when you don't want to go on the road anymore. That's the mailbox money. <laughs> right? well,
1: I, I call it, yeah, right, I call it the real estate of the music business. Yeah. It all starts with a song, thank God, and it still takes people and their hearts and mind and soul to create a song. Yeah. And then there's the recording of the song. But human beings still write songs. So... That's the real estate, is the publishing. Now, just in the last two months, I don't know if you know, but people like Bob Dylan and Stevie Nicks. Yeah, they've been selling. Lindsay Buckingham. Yesterday, Neil Young yep. announced that he sold his publishing. Yeah, I've been saying that.
0: Is, is there a particular reason why you think that's happening right now while I these do. guys are all? Okay.
1: I, I do. I think uh, there's a few reasons. I think one is they're getting older. Right. And they're like, they have their families. They kind of want to cash out. They're yeah. cashing out. Two, is that they haven't been on the road now. Since this pandemic, they're not making a living on the road, right? And um, they want to find somebody that can protect their copyrights. So they're working with people, and they're in a new phase in their life right now. Let's see what the guy next door is doing. Bob Dylan, you
0: $400 million. Well, that's the thing. I mean, people don't, I mean, <laughs> not that those guys are are poor to begin with, but you know, it's nice to not have to really worry about that. Let somebody else worry about mm-hmm. it. You get your cash and move on.
1: And what's you know, fortunate is Bob had his publishing to, to be able to sell it in the first place. A lot of people, like you look at the Beatles, the greatest thing,
0: as I said earlier. Yeah, we were talking about they, that yesterday, yeah.
1: Yeah, they never own their own publishing.
0: That's yeah, terrible. They
1: they were kids and they signed a piece of paper. They thought publishing that, you know, folio books where you see your printed music that that's published, they didn't understand the it. Of, of you know what, and that's actually,
0: it seems like these days we think, oh, everybody knows that. But there's a lot of people that don't really understand that. So. No,
1: no, and, and you have the negotiating power when you begin. If you're a new band now, you really have to have some insight and have a good manager to understand that and yeah. know how to do that and again if you want to give half your publishing away or uh, all of it because you think that's going to make you a star or whatever that's your choice but you have to
0: understand the ramifications down the road ramifications
1: yeah so i think that's what's going on at least recently with people selling their catalogs it's, it's an amazing time but um what happens is you send in these requests and then usually give it a week or 10 days or so and then you do follow-ups because what happens when you send a request to a publisher or a record company they then need to go to the songwriter if that's part of the contract they have with the songwriter or the artist and tell them about it and get their permission
0: yeah because and sometimes- also too and that in that arena and um, we've all heard these stories too but like certain like Paul McCartney didn't mm-hmm. want the Beatles songs or his songs used for certain advertising.
1: Led Zeppelin right.
0: was like that. They didn't want their songs used for but, Very much so. Kneeling but also down, that's. The
1: Eagles. Right. You know, all these people, you don't see much. And if you do, like I cleared songs with the Doors, who never used it. We gave them a half a million dollars to use, you know, Break On Through and you know, Monsters Inc. Right. Way back in the day. And Pete Townsend, we gave $300,000 for uh, Bob O'Reilly and another thing. So there's a lot of money. You need, need money there. And it, was a different use. It was in a film, it wasn't like a commercial
0: on a TV show. Um,
1: uh, catalogs, we're talking about catalogs.
0: Right, the Motown, so they're a whole collection of, of tunes. A
1: whole collection of songs. So Neil Young has a catalog, Bob Dylan has a catalog. Then there's like the Motown catalog, which is an amazing catalog of right. songs mostly from the 60s and 70s. And I needed to know what was an easier clear, they're called easy clears. And the Motown catalog is a catalog of amazing songs, but it's not so difficult and expensive to right. get permission and to license those songs. They're part of a pop culture in a certain way, and they are in commercials, and they're just a lot of fun. Yeah, they're just People used all the time for, for
0: movies and films. Or for and
1: and movies, commercials, yeah. and, and on American Idol or whatever, they right. stand out. But um, what I was getting at is that you submit these requests and you get a little time And then you follow up on this. Now, what happened in the last 10 years or more when I was working there is that hip hop came in and that's fine, that's great. But what happened, I would find when I would request a hip hop song that there could be at least eight writers on that thing, Mm -hmm. maybe 10, 10, at least five or six. And maybe they're using
0: samples, which is a whole other aspect. That's another
1: complication. And I dealt with that too. So what my job, first of all, is to get this list of songs that the producer wants to use in his show or movie, and then I go forth and one, find out who controls really correctly, controls a hundred percent of these songs. I need to clear it a hundred percent. Because if I clear it 92% and 8% is outstanding. And that one guy steps up and says, what'd you do that for? Right. And I've got a mess. you got a problem, yeah. (laughs) So in a timely manner, I have to find out, first of all, who controls it. And they're called splits. If you have a song and there's eight writers, then you've got an eight split on this one song. And those splits... And would that
0: be... like? So people talk about having points. Would that be applicable to the situation or yes that splits
1: let's say there's four writers on a song in country music now there's at least three or four writers on a song right there's no more like you know one guy in a room that wrote it by himself you know (laughs) yeah Exactly. there's at least three or four it's called committee writing in ashville where four people sit down and they write a song and it's amazing how you can't sometimes generally you can't tell like oh, this guy wrote the bridge and that guy wrote the chorus because they're really good at making it seamless. But anyway, let's say there's four writers on a song and they split it 25% each. That's simple. But sometimes like in the hip hop world, for example, this guy can have 13.42%. This guy can have 22.34%. This guy's got 10%. This guy's got 4%. And I've got to put this together as a pie and clear. And they all
0: all have to be on the same page and agree to it. And agree
1: with it and agree with the fees. And know that, let's say it's $100 for the song. If you own 25%, you're going to get $25. They're going to understand that. They're not going to get $100. They're going to get $25 because they're one of four writers. They only have 25%. Right. So that's part of what happens when music plays. And that's
0: a lot of the, uh, I think, too, a lot of the misconceptions. And people, you know, you get into situations where it's like a handshake deal. And then all of a sudden the song becomes a hit. And then you got to sort all that stuff out, right? Because that's where the money is. And hopefully it's you've retained true. your rights and, and all that stuff.
1: Well, what also happened, which was really crazy, is that these producers would hear a new song on the radio and they would love it and they go, I want the new Drake song, you know, and it just came out last week and we want to use that. So I would go to the publishers and sometimes they would say to me, well, we really don't know yet what the splits are because these guys are arguing about it over here, you know, (laughs) or they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're trying to
0: do business to get the get it done. right?
1: You get it done. So we would clear songs sometimes where the split would be pending. Oh, okay. And there's a good faith thing there.
0: Right. So and the fee the fee, is the, of, the fee is the fee and then the publisher distributes it, however. It's he, still the
1: MFN fee. But there were times when there were problems and this guy wanted more than that guy. And uh, I won't go there too, bad, <laughs> too much, but th- there were some problems sometimes. But generally not. And part of my job in music clearance was to have a gut, intuitive feeling through experience and understanding. If right. something was going to work out or not, because there were times where I just said, "This doesn't feel good." I would say that glass is half full, or the glass is half empty, right. and I would have to tell the producers, and then I would say, "I suggest you get another song to fill this spot." Yeah, I mean, and because ultimately,
0: ultimately, too, you, you are, you're you're um, you know, that's not the only project you're working on, right? You got fifteen other, twenty other things going on, and you got to get that done.
1: I was juggling a lot of things. We had a wonderful computer that was designed for music clearance and licensing. Awesome. And that was very helpful. Everything was, uh, it was paperless. It was all on scanning and barcodes. Awesome. The guy, Evan Greenspan, is just brilliant with that. But what was I getting at is that I had to have an intuition to know if it was going to clear. And then what I would try to do is when I, call them to give them the bad news, I would try to have a song, this is a backup, music supervision, right. a backup music supervision. And I would give them a list of ideas that felt the same or maybe lyrically spoke about the same thing and have the same tone and vibe to it to, uh, And then I knew that I think it would clear. That was right. a good part of that. Oh, you're suggesting this, then it better clear. And I had a feeling that it would clear through experiences. We would have in our database, we would say, well, what's the history of this song? You know, yeah, because you can go, see that, and right? Go, you, know, you can see it all laid out there. And this kind of a use, let's say, a live competition song, it cleared, it cleared, it cleared, it cleared. Oh, it didn't clear, but why didn't it clear? This right. kind of thing. So we would get a temperature again, the consensus through the history of that music clearance on that song. And then we could, you know, post compose used.
0: news. Um, for yeah. people that... Uh- I guess artists or writers out there that I, cause I hear a lot of people talking about like, yeah, we're trying to get our songs for TV and radio. We're trying to get them shop for that. What's your biggest advice as far as what to look out for if they're talking to reps that are trying to do that? Um, what are some, well, some, some big flags? Well, you,
1: you, you, well, well the flags, it's not so much the flags. I'll talk more about how do you get that done? How okay. do you get your songs in a TV show or in a movie and I, I, there's a couple of things. You find out who the music supervisor is on that show or that movie. And you find out who the editors are. And you get your songs in those people's hands. Because right. they're the ones that are hungry and their job is to find material. Yeah, they're making so the they're decisions. The, they're the gatekeepers. They're making the decisions. And they're also, these days, music supervisors help clear and license. That's part of their job now. So they know that, If you're starting out that they can make a good deal with you sometimes they don't even pay you they give you a license but really you get what's called the performance royalties if it's played on tv that's another part of music uh, business when a song is played on the radio and a tv show there's broadcast performance that's where you get into bmi and ASCAP, and that's not a negotiated thing if you're signed as a songwriter you can only belong to one pro performing right society BMI, so, right, so it's as a either, either one. Yeah. Either one. If you're a publisher, you can have a publishing company with both of them because you can then represent writers that are signed to both of those. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you sign, you decide if you want to be with ASCAP or BMI or CSAF, there's a couple more, and then you in with them, and then you fill out cue sheets, and they find out that your song is played on a particular show. Based on the ratings of that show is what will help decide how much you get paid, so right. that's a whole other revenue stream that Right. Comes and out. there's a
0: whole established fee structure for all the BMI ASCAP.
1: Right. So, what I was getting at is if a band says, no, I don't want to, I mean, okay, you can use my song for free in this TV show, they should know that they'll still get their performances on the back when I mean, it was put in. Um, but what I was getting at is part of what I had to do was music cues. shoots, is I would sit down with my headphones on and watch a TV show and What I would do logs, it's called two sheet logs, and I would have to put the song in there and the writer. And if it's a visual use or a background instrumental, for how long I have a stopwatch there, and I would. And it was crazy, you know, and 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 stop, stop, go, stop, go and look at it again. What the heck song was that again? Yeah, that's
0: that's an important part of the the business to get paid, right? Oh, oh, yeah. And then
1: sometimes I would find a song that I didn't clear because the producer didn't tell me, Uh put it in there like, what'd you do that for? Okay, I better go clear. Sometimes, (laughs) you know, the publisher, hey, I heard my song last night on TV and you didn't get permission. Oh, excuse me. And you go get it fixed, you know? Right. But what happens with these cue sheets, you take them down and you also give a scene description of what's going on. And then you submit it to the client and to BMI and
0: ASCAP yeah. on behalf of the publishers and the writers. Yeah, because so, if you don't if you do not do all those steps, people don't get paid, right?
1: Right, and then sometimes you would have a structured uh, timing on these uh, requests I was sending, where like up to 30 seconds will be $1,000. Up to one minute and thirty seconds would be fifteen hundred dollars. Hmm. So when I did these cue sheets, if it went over, let's say that one minute and thirty, and that we didn't clear it for up to two minutes, you know, then the publisher go, well, that's not the deal we made in you know, order record. Right. Company. so we would then have to go back and restructure, we re- you know negotiate this thing. So that was always a bit of a mess.
0: Yeah. So What's then what?
1: after. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I was saying after you. You know, clear it and it errors, Then you do what's called the licensing. And after the music you sheet, I do that. You request we would request the license from the publisher or the record company, or we would issue the license to the label or the record company. Some of the smaller people that represent themselves, they don't have the paperwork and the licenses, so we would issue that to them. Sure. So then there's a process of licensing. And that's a back and forth thing where we request a license and they send it to us and send it to the artist or publisher whoever whatever the next step will be and they will send it back to us. And what we would do in our company, EMGs, we would gather the funds from the producers and hold on to the funds. So as part of the licensing, we didn't have to go back to the client every time a license came in or whatever. We had it ready to go was part of our service to send the funds with the license back to the publisher gotcha. and the record company and the publishers and record companies appreciate that because then they don't have to go chase them down for
0: it. Yeah, and because everybody's, everybody's everybody's like that. The thing about that is, especially when you start talking about Academy Awards and and those kind of shows, I mean, what a big job, <laughs> to, having to chase yeah. all the money and having to do all that kind of thing. Um, what, what's some of your yeah. favorite memories of doing of working in the business? Like, what are a couple of things that really stand out? Artists that you've met, or um, you know, just funny stories.
1: Well, I would go to parties in Hollywood. I lived up in the whiskey go doggo office. for for a year so i was there in that whole punk rock and new wave and rock air band thing and and i had a lot of fun and i was playing in clubs not too much when i was younger i made a decision to to have a job and i had a family and i raised my kids and i didn't want to be the starving musician guy
0: i guess i was afraid of that yeah it's it's fun when you're you're just when it's just you but when you got kids and
1: yeah, it's different. And, but but what I was fortunate is I was in the industry I love and I learned about it. I was able to function. I was kind of always an artist at heart. So right. along the way, I would continue to play and write songs and do that because I just needed to. So when I left Las Vegas and I went to Hollywood, um, Bruce Springsteen really was the guy that flipped my songwriting switch. Yeah. And I really liked the, the idea of an American guy with a guitar and a
0: song to sing yeah it's it's I mean, so it's romantic right
1: <laughs> it's romantic it's <laughs> yeah. the new woody guthrie you know right. uh, bob dylan got sure. and he was very passionate and i happened to be 19 and very young when born to run came out okay and all of a sudden he's on the cover of newsweek in time is the future rock and roll and then he came to the roxy when i was a kid and that, that was when four in row, I was number one wow. and i was in the front row there and he came what out what a great place to on- see him <laughs> oh i was yeah. right up front he actually came out and said hey kid would you hold the words to this song so i'm sitting there it was on a E <laughs> T radio broadcast and it was a carol king song that the birds call it court it, called going back yeah and he I'm, you know he's reading these words and singing i'm right there and then afterward he said let's have a Pan for the man that holds the words. <laughs> <And> <laughs>
0: Funny. So
1: it was just great. So then, you know, I started writing songs and a lot and doing that. So some of my favorite memories is there's a lot of them, you know. And uh, I just like that I was in Hollywood in the music business, and I didn't get in trouble, and I didn't get messed
0: up on drugs. Right. And yeah, I because that time period, a lot of guys did, right?
1: Uh, cocaine bill, you know, all of that stuff with Kraluz and stuff. But I wasn't motivated that way. I,
0: I you yeah. I give my mother. Yeah, you had to show up at at your office job and do do that. I did. Straight. Very responsibly. (laughs) Oh, but
1: but Disney, when I went to work
0: for Disney, I mean, Mickey Mouse
1: was a (laughs) taskmaster.
0: That's you know, what I. People, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that because I have a lot of friends that have worked for Disney over the years, yeah, and yeah. that's while that is a great job, that's a pretty demanding yeah. job, right?
1: Very demanding, and the work ethic. It's it, it just understood you work real hard, but it was so magical because I was there. I started in '88 when the Little Mermaid just came out, wow. and that's when Disney turned around with that live um, animated stuff, alive. I should say animation. That's the um, Alan Minkin songs and the Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin yeah. and all of that. Huge, huge so songs. It was a magical time. When we were winning the Academy Awards for best song of the year, Lion King with Elton John. Yeah,
0: and you and were and that. you were all part of that, right? Because that a lot of yeah. that was with was with the marketing. Because I word was in marketing. And what was nice
1: is this what's the word they use is synergy. And the synergy that all the different departments, home video and international and the theme parks and the networks and all of these people that were firing on all these different cylinders, where I was starting at the basics, there that I had to know what we have the rights to work with and provide the stuff to these different departments. So, very magical. My kids went to the daycare center across the street, right wow. there, Disney Daycare. You would figure they'd do a good job. That, where and was that? Did.
0: Where was that? Your office at? Was that in Hollywood? It's, on, it's on Buena Vista in North oh. Bank. Oh, right okay, there gosh. on the studio. Just line, over the hill, right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> where Walt Disney uh, used to mm-hmm. be. And it was kind of like a college dorm area. It was beautiful with those squirrels and birds and grass. And it was really a nice environment to work on. Very creative. Cool. Yeah.
0: Um, it what, one of the things, actually, going back to your Vegas days, so you mentioned, we talked a little bit about um, you met some interesting people. I mean, along the way, and you, one of them was Elvis. Tell, tell us the Elvis story. I did meet Elvis.
1: Yeah, when I went to Pepperdine in Malibu, I went to uh, school with a guy named Gene Porter, and his father, Bill Porter, was Elvis's sound engineer. Oh, Bill, Bill started back in Nashville with Chet Atkins at RCA, wow. and he helped engineer great songs like l Pretty Woman" and "Evelyn Wilson." So he moved to Vegas, and Gene grew up in Vegas, and we went to Pepperdine. So. Uh, it so happened that I, I used to mow lawns and go see Elvis anyway because I loved him when I was a kid, and I used to sneak up at the International Hotel, which yeah, is where Elvis used, used to play in Vegas. Yeah. Where I used to play, and I would sit there in the balcony watching him rehearse the band. Wow. I just always loved Elvis, and my peers thought he was like corny, like you know yeah. like, D. Martin or something. He's great too, <laughs> but I loved Elvis. So it turned out on my 19th birthday, which was Easter morning. So that would have been uh, March 30th, 1976. I got to see Elvis on the Late Show, and we went upstairs uh, after the Late Show in his dressing room, it was Easter wow. morning. And I remembered all the these girls were sitting around, and these guys were sitting around. Billy Swan was there who was like, I can help and I right. at the time. And Elvis came out and he had this beautiful robe on it, said "EP," you know, on it in gold. And and uh, I was standing with Bill and his son, Gene, and Elvis came over to us and I shook his hand and I basically said, Happy Easter, Elvis. And he said, Happy Easter, son. And, <laughs> I mean, and then I listened to him speak to Bill Porter about the show that we just watched. Right. And I really recognized when I used to watch Elvis rehearse and when I heard him speaking to Bill how astute he was about sound and how he cared about the show right and he had very particular ideas about how he wanted things to be when i would watch him rehearse he would break down and say to the singers you know the sweet inspirations do this or to the drummer ronnie to do that yeah and he was there was nobody else up there telling him what to do it was his show and he and James Burton put that band together and he was very much in control.
0: Yeah. And just, and, I mean, just great musicians anyways, right? He, he had those, oh, he, I know he loved those guys.
1: He had two different choirs and he had an orchestra and an eight piece band, the TCB band. They were just oh, explosive. It was yeah. great. And then another memory going up here is that I did get me to meet John Lennon. And this was when he was on his, what's called a Lost Weekend. Uh, when he was separated from Yoko and right. made pain and living in Los Angeles, and he was hanging out with Harry Nielsen and Alice Cooper and Ringo and people. That's and interesting. Alice and Alice Cooper. Not Lennon
0: Alice Cooper though. That's an interesting combination. Yeah, they they, they called
1: themselves the Hollywood Vampires at the time, mm. and that was years ago. But recently, Alice redid re- that name, and he's been playing lately with Johnny Depp. And stuff. Right. Yeah. But anyway, Alice was a big golfer and. He knew my mother and her boyfriend, Tony. So Alice called Tony and said, hey, John Lennon wants to come to Vegas. Will you take care of him? Uh So uh, he stayed at the Riviera. And Tony, I'm, I'm grateful he had the mind to invite me to come out to the airport. You said, you want to go out and pick up John Lennon at the airport? So I remember, <laughs> You're like,
0: yes. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> Let me check my so schedule. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll skip school. Whatever yeah, exactly. We so we went out there, and I just remember uh, getting in a little car with those guys and going up into the terminal. And I, I tell the story, and it's a personal story, but uh, I, I was walking down the way with John, just the two of us, and, you know, I'm, I'm an 18 year old. This is before I met 18 years old. And 18 years I old, a huge
0: Beatles fan. <laughs> oh, he's, and so
1: I turned to John because I said, I got to say something to this guy besides, hey, you're great. Yes. I said, hey, you know, because John didn't have a father either, as we all know, and I didn't. So I turned uh-huh. to John and said, hey, you know, you've always been like my father, you know, because I didn't have one either. And, uh, you know, he put his arm around me and he said, well, son, what well, do you want to know?
0: <laughs> How and we
1: both we both had that moment where we looked at each other and said yeah, yeah that's what that's like
0: so. well you know the thing about that with those guys i mean even like you know the celebrity thing in general and i've been fortunate to work with a lot of people like you have and people always come at them a certain way they always like come at like you know uh oh you're a star and you're so famous but like when you make yeah. the effort to connect personally they usually yeah. appreciate that right not all the time yeah. but usually
1: that Yeah, I, I don't know why I had the guts to do it, but it was a <laughs> primal it was a primal thing because it was true, and I just kind of said it, you know, and yeah. grabbed the moment, and he appreciated that. So That's then awesome. we went back to the Riviera Hotel, and I went up in his room, and he was talking with May Payne in the other room, and, and I was hanging out with Harry Nielsen, and then basically John came out, and I don't blame him, he said, Okay, it's time
0: to go. <laughs> he basically threw me out of the room. Oh, that's funny. And that was my story there. Yeah. Was, um, so let's talk about uh, one of the really interesting things with you, and and uh, I just recently found this out, um, is that you actually were pretty much personally involved in getting Buddy Holly, his uh, star in the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. Um, tell we're us that sure. story. It's it's a really interesting yeah. story about also your friends with with Buddy's uh, widow Maria. Um, I
1: spoke with her right before I spoke with you, because today's her birthday. Awesome. So she lives in Texas, and I called and sang her happy birthday. Yeah, uh, she's great. So in talking about Buddy Holly and getting the star, um, I'll tell you about that and what the process is. Of yeah. getting a how, star, how did you guys that's first? That's
0: yeah, tell us, let's go back to how you first yeah. met Maria and all that.
1: Well, I, I would say it was in a 2009. And the 50th anniversary of the day the music died. Right. The plane crash. When The plane crash. The 50th anniversary was coming up. And I worked in the music business. And I'll, I dealt with the lady at Paul McCartney's office who dealt with Newt Elena or Maria Elena Yeah, Because he actually, so I,
0: and, and just to mention, so Paul, and I didn't know this either. You told me this, that Paul McCartney actually had owned the rights to the to Buddy Holly catalog. Yes, he, con-
1: he, he controls the. There's a couple publishers involved, there's Universal and Paul McCartney, depending on the songs and the territories. So I always start talking to this uh, lady that worked at Paul's office, who was friendly with Maria Elena, buddy's widow, about this idea I had about getting the apartment tapes released. You know the Buddy Holly story? Two months before he died, he went into his New York apartment and on a reel-to-reel recorded his last songs and It's oh. just him and a him and a guitar. Right. I call it the heart of of artichoke, or the the holy grail. It's really magical, just vocal guitar performance that were really well done. Wow. And after he died, they put the fireballs, matching tracks to him, and they just weren't as good. So my goal was to get these apartment tapes released because they still weren't released, and I wanted right. to time that with the 50th anniversary. Right. So. The lady at McCartney's office said, you got to get a hold of Maria because it's all up to her. She has these tapes." So I spoke with Maria Elena about this idea. And then I did what's called a pilgrimage in 2009. I landed in Albuquerque and I went to the studio where Norman Petty recorded Buddy's songs. Right And... Uh, saw that and took a tour then i went into lubbock texas and went all around lubbock where he was born and raised and grew up
0: yeah because you're also I mean, a huge buddy holly fan besides just well, the business end of it right and it gets back to the
1: beatles you know if you sure. know the beatles and love the beatles what you tend to do is find out where that came from and then you research that and you go and find out about elvis and Carl perkins and buddy holly and the everly brothers right and these people that were the roots of the Beatles. So what I did is I went down to Dallas and I met Maria Elena and we got along great. And then she came out to Los Angeles and I would chaperone sh- 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 her around. We went to the record company and we managed to get these apartment tapes released for the 50th anniversary, wow. which was cool. And you guys yeah. should look into the listening music, Buddy Holly Department. Too. I, I, so I, I, after, never, I actually you
0: know. had never heard about that, so now I'm, I'm oh. curious.
1: <laughs> oh, Peggy Stu got married and crying, waiting, hoping, and learning the game. And just him on a guitar. It's just oh, stripped down. It's like Buddy Unplugged. Yeah. So then after we did that, I noted that in the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was in 1986, there were 10 inductees. And Buddy was the only one that did not have a Hollywood star. Oh, okay. I'm like, well, what's up with that? Yeah. You know? So I made it a mission to take care of this. So I asked for Maria Elena's permission. And she says, well, that's a good idea. People have been talking to me about that for years,
0: but good luck. Yeah, because it's complicated, right? It's expensive, it's complicated.
1: too. <laughs> it's it, it, it takes a lot of it, it took vision and passion and the diligence and an understanding and, but since I was in the music business I was able to, to get it done and so I went to the Chamber of Commerce and found out what I needed to do and I became what's called a petitioner so I was petitioning to get the start of the very so part of it was to come up with people that supported this idea so I managed to get Yoko Ono and Priscilla Presley uh-huh. and people that were part of I knew that John Love. Buddy, yeah, Elvis was friends and love. Buddy, I found people that would understand, so they wrote these great letters and endorsed them. You
0: know? That's amazing.
1: And, and, and then I had to put this book together, and then I had to get the fees together at the time. It's more now, but at the time, it was $25,000. Yeah, and people don't,
0: people don't realize that you have to actually, there's a whole thing, like you said, yeah, it's going not through it. It's, right. not,
1: it's not an award, like, I mean, it's an honor. But Marie Lena said, you know, well, I'm not going to pay for it. That's tacky. So you go find out. So what I did is I went to Paul McCartney's office and I went to Peer Music, which is another publisher of those, and Universal Records who published, I mean, who is a record company for right. his records. And I got them to split it in thirds. Wow. So, you know, $8,333 isn't very much money to get this done. Yeah. So we got that together. And then... Um, I got the approval on uh, like June twelfth, uh, 2010. And I'm like, this is great, it worked out because they only choose one posthumous person per year. Oh so I, I know was that. up in a lot of competition, you know, only right. one person that's not with us anymore. But I made it real clear that this is the time for buddy.
0: Yeah, the time it was. So right. once
1: I got yeah, once I got the approval, I said, okay. Let's do this on his second and fifth birthday, which wow. was the following September in mm. 2011. So we waited almost a year and a half because I knew that America's about uh, anniversaries and 50s yeah, and Yeah, that all made I that all kind of made sense,
0: right? <laughs> bigger bang.
1: Time time flies anyway. So what I did is we got that set for his birthday, and then I went over and found the actual spot where I wanted the star to be. Because I had an idea. I wanted to be next to the Beatles because Buddy's the roots of the Beatles. Yeah, it makes sense. And it was so beautiful. So I went over there, and there was just two spots. you got John Paul. No, not Paul. John George Ringo. Then there was a blank spot, and then there's another spot. So I took a picture, and I sent it to the Chamber of Commerce. This is exactly where I want it, and we're going to have it on this date, the 75th birthday. So we got that approved. And what's nice is after Buddy's star was put there, I arranged for it to be right next to where Paul McCartney's would be one day. And okay. they'd been trying to get Paul to get a star for 20 years. Right, and he's busy and all that. He wasn't interested, whatever it was. But six months after Buddy's was there, Paul showed up and got his right next to Buddy's. Oh, that's awesome. the And next to Buddy. I know it's so that's great. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of the process is uh, you know being a petitioner and getting it done and when and where and how yeah. and then i managed i had to get the guest speakers because you have a ceremony
0: right. so
1: to me it was obvious uh, i got phil everly who's a friend of buddy from the everly brothers mm-hmm. Friends with buddy. he was a speaker and then gary Busey. who played buddy yeah. great and that Queen. you know what we
0: were just talking about that before we went on air but i i mean that that's one of my favorite documentary films i mean that really that's good. actually one of the i mean of those genres that's one of the first ones that was really hugely successful it
1: was one of the first it came out in 78 and it really helped bring buddy's career back along with american pie Right. which was 50 years ago in 1970. Yeah, that was in the
0: American graffiti era. All that stuff yes. was sitting, right?
1: Yeah. So those two, two things. That, I think uh, the Buddy Holly story is a good pop film, and it was good for his uh, exposure of his songs. But the truth is the Buddy Holly story is much more involved, much more interesting, much yeah. more depth. Yeah, that was a homogenized a version very yeah. homogenized and a lot of the characters weren't even correct but they got that done so anyway we got gary to be a speaker and then peter asher who's a big producer right that produces uh linda ronstadt and james taylor singing Buddy's songs like that will be the day and mm-hmm. they, so they were the speakers and we had a big party at the big tower because if anybody wants to see the star it's right in front of the capitol tower
0: Capital Records uh, yeah.
1: and it says Capital Records Tower and Bine Street. And at the time, the record company was going, Well, we don't want Buddy in front of Capital Records because he's a universal artist.
0: <laughs> That's true. So they said, Go
1: across the street, go across the street and see if there's an opening spot there. And I went over there and right. I saw Chuck Berry and different people, but there was no spots. So I went back to, universal yeah, you want
0: to be you know, I think the Beatles is a good location. <laughs>
1: That's why I said, Hey. He's gonna be next to the Beatles. And they said, okay.
0: Yeah, and that, that is, kind of overrides uh, it. That's, you know, yeah, that, it that, that's such a, I mean, I know that was not an easy process. And then you, you've you actually, and you've remained friends, close friends with, with Maria Elena.
1: Yeah, I spoke to her today because it's her birthday. And uh, the thing about Buddy Holly, I just want to take two minutes to say about Buddy Holly is that Buddy arrived at a real interesting time in American music because mm-hmm. he grew up in Texas and his heroes were Bill Monroe and Hank right. Williams and Bob Wills, and he played music growing up banjo and mandolin and guitar. He huh? had a duel with a guy named Bob Montgomery, who yeah. became a music publisher in Nashville. But then what happened in 1954 is that the big locomotion came through town, and that was Elvis. Right and when Elvis came through town, and Buddy saw that, it
0: kind of he switched and it, switched and gears. And
1: said, yeah. I'm, I'm going there. So the thing that Buddy had was the ability to write those songs. Buddy was a songwriter. Elvis yeah. was not. And Buddy was a great musician, a great guitar player. So what happened with Buddy Holly is that he created the first two guitar, bass, and drums self-contained rock and roll band that wrote their own songs and sang them and went into the studio and made the records. And when that band went out on the road. They sounded like the record. Right. Because up until that time, people. that's that
0: was not the deal, right?
1: <laughs> no, Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers, they had pickup people. Yeah. You know, musicians that they would play and then they would go their own way. So Buddy had the first self-contained band. The first album, the chirping chirping crickets, that came out in 57, was the first album with a rock and roll band on it. Yeah. You can see four guys. And on the cover of that album was a Stratocaster guitar. Yeah. And people are like, what is that? So Buddy <laughs> True. went yeah. over to England for a whole month in March of 58, for a month and played over 50 gigs all around that area. And he was on a show that was the equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show. Right. It was live Sunday night at the Palladium in London. And he played that Stratocaster guitar.
0: And that changed, and changed the-, the world.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the first time Keith Richards and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and his people saw that Stratocaster guitar yeah. and Buddy played with the capo on That'll Be the Day. And they're like, what is that? <laughs> and, you know, John and Paul and, <laughs> yeah. and these people. So Buddy was really a very important part of yeah. the concept
0: of writing. Yeah. And that's, and that's a story. I mean, his story, that that's a part that we don't know. Most people don't know that, right? It's
1: a long time ago, but, you know, Really, it's not, it was only you know 60 something years ago, yeah. but he was a songwriter. And the thing with Buddy is, he had a, a ability to write pop melodies, uh, coming with a country groove and a pop sensibility. Yeah, I call them like the pop Hank Williams, right? And his songs, uh, were very simple three, four chords. So, if you play guitar in the beginning and you learn, you know, Peggy Sue, or and you know, another easy. part
0: about, about that, part, guys like that, is that the average person can play those songs that's right and that's just like the beatles like
1: yeah well their first songs were that love me do their first big hit was basically a buddy Holly song and they learned how to write songs and structures and what chords work and what keys and then of course they expanded which buddy would have done too yeah but the, the the scratch the scratch the itch the desire the passion to do this Came from Buddy Holly when they saw him doing that, mm-hmm. and they realized that we gotta write our own songs. Yeah. We can't just do covers; we'll run out of material. So that's the thing. And John and Paul were very wonderful artists together and apart. Too.
0: Well, that's awesome that, that you know Paul too. They were willing to step up and and help pay for that star, and that just is sort of a testament. Yes. Uh, just a you know big a part of of the influence and those guys. I mean yeah like you said it was a while it was a long time ago i guess and and uh, in a way but in a way it wasn't and those guys yeah. still to this day i mean buddy holly all those original Carl Perkins that we were just talking about. I played with Carl down in Memphis at the Peabody. Did you? You did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and great. Uh, long time ago, I met Carl too. I met He's Carl a sweet. That was, was the sweetest guy. Uh, uh, I
1: was there when he got his uh, hands on the uh, in front of the Guitar Center in Los Angeles. Oh, okay, and it was right. great. Uh, Brian Setzer was there, and Tom Petty was there. Yeah,
0: and, I met all those guys oh, at Sound City in the '80s. Petty, all the, the yeah,
1: oh yeah, the rockabilly <laughs> guys and yeah. the rock and rollers. And there was a moment where Carl was just by himself at the Guitar Center. Playing the guitar, singing to himself the song called Movie Mad, which is yeah. his first composition. And then I, I went up and said hi to him, and he was talking to somebody, and they were talking about
0: Jesus. Yeah.
1: Jesus Christ. So, you know, it was wonderful. Really sweet guy. Yeah,
0: he yeah. was he was the nicest man. He had his sons playing with him, too.
1: Stan. Uh, yeah,
0: right. Yeah, yeah they're, they're all characters. Cool you play they were all the characters, best. man. They are. <laughs> I play. Yeah. When I do Little Richard. I do all those. All the old. I started doing the oldie stuff first before I ever did anything else. So I used to play with uh, Danny Flores, the guy that did the Son Tequila. Oh. You know oh. the champs. Oh. Sure, uh, sure. And I was doing that yeah. when I was eighteen, and we met everybody you can think of because Danny knew sure all, all those guys. Um, That's cool. That's cool. You, you know, and to wrap everything up, what what's your advice in terms of just the music business, the music licensing, clearance stuff? Um, what's just some things that that you would like to to give? Uh, information on to younger people that are coming up and and that kind of thing.
1: Well, I think it gets back to doing the work. Uh, and if you're a songwriter, um, start out. It's a good idea to learn the people's songs and to understand how songs are structured. be it Buddy Holly or Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty or yeah, or, you know Taylor Swift, whatever, and look, digest that and understand how things work structurally and chord wise and how to um, I think good songs personally, they have what's called tension and release. Usually the verse has some tension and then it pops into a chorus it has a release and it gives you something. You wanna create something, I believe, that gives to the listener. So you wanna think about what you wanna say and how you wanna say it. And it's a beautiful thing because everybody is an individual. They all have their own fingerprints and DNA. And as a songwriter, you start with your influences, and then you got to find your voice, your style, your thing, right. and get into that and focus on that and do it and doing it, do it for the love of it. And then you you work on getting a catalog together, and you've got to find somebody that believes in you and gets it. And there could be 10 people in a room. Nine of them say, I don't like it. I don't get it. Give up. Don't put your day job or whatever they're going to say. And then one guy says, hey, come here. I know what you're trying to do. Let me hear some more of that. Right. So you need to find somebody that gets it and believes in it and that has some ability to represent you. Because if you have somebody in the corner, if it's a manager or a publisher, uh, they can make a difference in your life. And uh, yeah. just you know, do the work, perform, play, perform, play. Now, you can be a musician. That's great. My thing is songs. I like songs more than music. Now, there's music and songs, but I like the thing about the melody and the lyric,
0: marriage together,
1: and telling a little story. Yeah, because that's
0: so powerful when that's all clicking, right?
1: Three minutes, you know, and you can do it by yourself. Movies and plays and stuff, a lot of people are involved, you know. Yeah, You can whittle it down if you want to write it with three other people or whatever, but I think it's a good idea to start writing them by yourself and get the ability to know how to write a
0: bridge in a course. And mm-hmm. course and put yeah, just the, so the, the basic mechanics, I think. The
1: mechanics of it. So if you're in a room with somebody else, two or three other people, and they need a bridge, you go, well, I do How about this? You have experience. Mm-hmm. So I would say you show up and do the work and work on your, your thing and and find out what you want to say and how you want to say it in your style, you know? And, uh, and go forth from there because it, it all starts with the song. Yeah, and I mean goes. it's finding your own
0: voice and 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 uh, connecting, right? I mean it's all about the connection with the audience. And
1: yeah, I've got this thing called the four C's: create, connect, contribute, collect. Now you have got to create it. For me, I understood the second one is the most difficult, and that's connecting. And once you connect, you contribute, and then something comes back to you. Right. You don't know in what way or how much you're even wise lie sometimes,
0: except you did the work. Yeah. And most you're people, connected, most, most songwriters, know. They, they write because they love it. They don't think they're going to get you rich. It. Right.
1: You do it because you love it, yeah. but you would like people to hear it and sure. connect with it. Like when I play live now, I'll do, you know, four hours and maybe sing 60 songs and maybe five of them will be my own. Cause I know, People want to hear what they know. Sure. But it's always nice when you do one of your own. And as you're doing it, you look out and you see people
0: move into it or yeah, tapping their foot. Kind of sing mm-hmm. yeah. sing.
1: And then if they like it afterward, then you know you're not crazy, maybe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was all it was all worth it in some way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right.
1: You gotta get it. You do it in your bedroom, then you gotta get out of your bedroom. That's it. Right. Get it out there, you know. Yeah, you gotta be I think,
0: you gotta be brave and and, and put yourself out there.
1: I, I think it was Bob Dylan who said a song isn't a song until somebody else hears it. Right. So you gotta get out there and do it. Yeah,
0: there's some truth in that. I, I think yeah. um how's actually how's the best way for people to find you online? Cause I know you have a lot of your social pages. What's what's the best way? And we're actually gonna put links just so people know in the podcast description.
1: Sure. Um just my email address works for me. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Kevin McGowan, my name at Aol.com. Yeah, and, and I, on, have face- Brian, I have a Facebook. You're on you're on Facebook and all that. I I, I am on Facebook and I, I have a, a web page, but it's down from on, my gotta get that back up. But yes, I'm on Facebook and then my email and I'll respond, you know, if you have any thoughts or yeah. questions.
0: Yeah, because I think you know it, it's what's awesome, Kevin, is um I mean we've talked and, and you uh you performed quite a bit at the Pioneer Saloon, a place that I work with mm-hmm. um as social media guy. And um what's great about you is you have so much knowledge and that's that you know like that whole area of the music licensing clearance all that kind of thing there's so much uh misconceptions and and people just don't really know <laughs> about that stuff so I, right. I think and that we yeah. can actually even do another one of these down the road At and we'll, we'll anytime we'll, yeah we'll even hyper focus on 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 one aspect of it but um because there's so much we can really talk about but i, I thank you yes. so much for for your time and uh you have so My many pleasure. great, yeah, you have so many great stories. Thank you, stories. <laughs> it's a great.
1: And I, all the best to everybody out there and write on and write your songs. And that's one thing to write them. But if you're a performer too and you get out and play your songs that you create, that's also a way to present them. Yeah.
0: You know, and protect so you, your And protect your, the audience. <laughs>
1: protect your rights. Protect your eyes. Always protect your eyes. And know that you have the starting gate to negotiate you have the power in the beginning. And you have the song. Yeah, and you got to write the song. So have fun getting that done.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a process. It's a process. All right. <laughs> thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate Happy it. Happy New Year, Daryl.
1: We'll be in touch. Okay. Hey, you too, thank man. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us, and please consider subscribing to our podcast and follow us on our social media pages for guest announcements.